So I have a message for you as we get started, and here it is. Don't settle. Don't settle. That's actually something that a woman in Atlanta was being forced to do, or is being forced to do, by a hospital in her area when it comes to her bill. Social media got a hold of this story, and they've been calling out to her, don't settle. And here's why. Back in July, this woman showed up at her local hospital and went to the emergency room because she had a head wound that needed to be treated. And so she went in, but they were really, really busy at that particular time, and they told her to just wait, to sit down in the waiting room and that they would get to her. And so she sat down in the waiting room, and she waited, and she waited, and they didn't call her name and didn't call her name. She sat there for seven hours, and nobody had called her name, and she thought, this is ridiculous. I shouldn't have to sit here this long. So she got up and she left. Well, she was surprised a couple, week later, a couple weeks later when she got a bill from the hospital for almost $700 for her time in the emergency room waiting room. Almost $700 they charged her for sitting there. Now, understand, they didn't call her back. They didn't take her vitals. They didn't check her in. She just sat there. She thought, this cannot possibly be right, and so she must be a mistake, and so she contacted the billing department and asked them, and they said, oh, no, there's no mistake. You have to pay that. The spokesman, who later ended up on the news because this story started getting some traction, said, well, we charge people before they're seen, not when they're seen. And the woman was beside herself, and she said, well, what should I have done differently? And they said, well, you should have been more patient. (laughs) Can you believe that? Really, you should have been more patient. Like leaving after five hours or seven hours is so hasty, right? Well, this is one circumstance where I actually completely agree with social media that is saying, don't settle and pay that bill. You shouldn't do so. And sometimes it's, it's kind of clear to us, I shouldn't settle in this particular context, in this situation. And certainly I think in that context or in that situation, she shouldn't settle for having to pay that, that bill. It just doesn't seem, doesn't seem right. And we don't like, in general, the idea of settling isn't something that we like because it kind of feels like we're giving in or like we're accepting less than what we should. And so we don't like to settle, but my question is, are there times when we do? Are there times when you do? If you think just about life in general, I think there are lots of times when we actually choose to settle. Think about it in your career or in your job, in your job search. When you first went into the job market to look for a job right out of maybe high school or maybe out of trade school or out of college, you were probably pretty happy just to get a job. I mean, to get something that would finance your car and finance your apartment and finance your Starbucks habit, you were happy if you got that. But the happiness didn't last, or maybe you're earlier on and maybe you're in that situation and the happiness is starting to fade off. And you're like, well, I don't want this. What I want now is is a better job, and I want a better benefits, and I want better pay and better hours. And so you've started looking for another job, or you did start looking for another job, and and finally you found that. And maybe it was your dream job, maybe it wasn't your dream job, but it was a good job, and you liked it. And maybe you still like it very, very much. And you sort of settled in. 
Now, it's not that you wouldn't consider another job if, it, if the offer sort of came up and fell into your lap, but truth is, you're pretty comfortable where you are. And so you start to, to settle for where you are and you stop looking for something different or new. Same thing happens when it comes to your house. When you moved, moved out of the house that you grew up in, you probably moved into the worst place you'll ever live in your life. Right? And you can think about that. It's probably true. For me, it was the upstairs of this small house. I just had the upstairs. You had to climb all of these stairs to get up there. And it had drafty windows and it had a faulty radiator. So you spent most of the window in hats and gloves and coats just to try to stay warm because it was a lousy place to live. Then I got married, and that was a little bit better, but our first apartment, married apartment, was not that great. Our bedroom was a converted porch that didn't have any heat. And so at night in the winter, a glass of water in there would freeze before morning. That's what our place was. But you get dissatisfied with that. So it's like, well, no, I gotta, now I've got to move to a better place and in a better neighborhood. And eventually you do, and you find that, and you get it kind of set up the way that you like it. And what do you do? You settle in. Or what about with friendships? You work really hard early on in life to develop friendships and you, you meet people and then maybe you go off to college and you make new friends that are going to be friends for life and that's awesome. But you get to a point where developing friends all of a sudden isn't a big deal. In fact, if you're the average American, by the time you reach age 40, you won't have developed any, friendship in the pre any significant friendship in the previous 10 years and you won't develop any significant friendships in the next 10 years if you're 40 or over. And if you just think about your life, maybe you'd say, you know what? That's kind of true. I'm still hanging with all those same people. Now, there are caveats to that. One is if you're part of a church, and specifically if you're part of a small group. That changes the landscape on that. But for the most part, that's the way we settle in with the friends we have, and it's like, okay, this is where I am. The same thing can happen to us, spiritually speaking, as well. We find the things that sort of work, the things that, that make us feel close to God, the things that have worked in the past, and so we kind of canonize those in our life. That's the way that I'm going to pursue God. That's the way that I'm going to worship. That's the place that I'm going to go. That's the things I'm going to do, and we sort of settle in. And as a result, we get to the place where there's very little that is really pushing us off to, to try and experience new things in God and come to new opportunities and jump into new ministry and, and new ways to experience who God is and grow in our faith in Him. Now, I don't want to suggest to you that these things leave you in some sort of spiritual or relational vegetative state. The fact is that you're probably really happy where you are. I mean, if those things are true for you, you're probably pretty settled. In fact, you worked really hard to get yourself to that place. And you're probably pretty satisfied. But the thing is, we serve a God who's always doing new things. A God who desires to lay new opportunities in our lap, new chances for us to engage in ministry and to make an impact in the world in which we live. And yet we're pretty much settled right where we are. And God would say to us, don't settle. Understand where it is that I would call you to, to go. Open up your minds to what it is that I would engage you to do. There are a lot of joys to be found in the places that we settle, but there are also some dangers. 
The danger is that we become complacent. We stop looking outward and we stop considering what I need to do to learn and to grow and to improve and we start looking inward to see how we can make sure we don't lose the progress that we've made. And so we start to build fences around our lives and we start to canonize things to the place where we want to make sure that we don't lose this and we're very happy to kind of stay where we are and what happens as a result is that we miss out on all that God would intend for us. Now, I'm not saying that some of those things shouldn't stay just as they are. Some of them probably should. And some of them always will. But as soon as we close ourselves down, we start to miss out on who it is that ultimately we can be and that God has called us to be. And here's the thing. You don't have to get old to get there. You just have to get satisfied. You just have to get comfortable. You just have to settle. And it can be very comfortable there, but it's not very captivating. And it's rarely a place from which we're inclined to pursue a new challenge or new opportunity that God has in store for us. And the message we all need to be confronted with, myself certainly included, is don't settle. Don't settle for good when God's offering great. Don't settle for being on the sidelines when ministry is happening all around you and when you're needed in the game. Don't settle. Regardless of what age or stage of life you're at, God has more in store. And the best way for recognizing what that is, is to recognize that God has gifted you, that he has called you to go and to serve and to make a difference in the world in which you live. That's the best way, is that we would just engage on our own and that we would get out there and we would make things happen. But sometimes we don't. We don't always do the things that we know that we should do. You know you should do that. But we don't always do what we know that we should do. And so sometimes there are circumstances that come up in our lives that sort of shake us loose. Things that are unsettling, that cause us to kind of break out of the settled mode that we're in because of what's going on around us that kind of just dislodges us from the equilibrium that we've been living under. And when those things happen, they cause us to ask, oh, is there something different? It kind of wakes us up and make us ask the question, am I where I'm supposed to be or is there something else in store? And there are a few things that come into all of our lives from time to time that, that can be, and actually I would suggest to you should be things that cause us to consider where we are and what God would have for us going forward. One of those things that tends to shake us up is transition. Transition that happens in life. Maybe through COVID, your job went away. Or maybe you got downsized. Or maybe your job, because of the consolidation that happened in your company, your job moved to another city in order to keep it, you'd have to move over to that other city. Or maybe your, your kids left home and now you're in an empty nest. Or maybe your kids moved back home and you don't have the empty nest anymore. But there are things that just change the landscape. They just change what has kind of become this mind-numbing existence of just moving forward, same thing day after day after day, and pretty soon before you know it, it's been year after year after year. Transition is something that shakes us up and causes us, should cause us, to ask, am I where I'm supposed to be? Does God have something else different in store? Another one is sickness. The doctor walks in. He says, yes, it is cancer. Or it's heart disease. Or it's some other debilitating illness or ailment that you're going to have to deal with. And all of a sudden, it's like life doesn't look the same out into the future. And it causes us to examine the present. Another would be crisis. Health crisis, as we've talked about. Family crisis. Financial crisis. 
Things that cause us to, to break out of sort of the mundane mindset and cause us to ask or should cause us to ask, what are you trying to teach me? Where are you trying to lead me? You're certainly here more recently. There are other crises that have happened all around our world and around our country. You've got this global pandemic. Maybe you've heard about it. It's called COVID, right? Which has shaken up our lives over these last couple of years. You've got race relations that are, have people and groups at odds with one another. You would think because of what we've been through that we'd have made significant progress forward in that, but it looks like almost we've, we've retreated or we've gone further back instead of further forward or the crisis of political division that exists in our world, in our country especially, is significant. And people are not just asking. In fact, I just read an article that wasn't suggesting that we might lose the unity that we have in this country. It was we might lose the democracy that we have in this country. These things are going on all around us, and any one of those issues or categories of issues will shake us up and should get our attention. And while the issues themselves are things that we'd probably rather not have to face, if what it accomplishes is breaking us out of the complacency of just blindly moving forward along the same route, the same rut, the same direction as we've been going to get us to ask ourselves, is there something bigger? Is there something different? Is God trying to accomplish? Is God trying to get my attention? If that's what it forces us to do, if that's what it brings upon us, then I would suggest to you that that's a path of blessing, for God to just not allow us to mindlessly continue on down a path that is separate from the, the leading that He ultimately would want us to have. He works all things together for good, we're told. And I believe that. And oftentimes, it's the challenge that shakes us up that gets our mind moving in a direction to recognize that He's trying to do something different in us and through us. Now, in the same way that that's a benefit for us as individuals, that's also a benefit for us as a church because the truth is that churches can fall into these same traps. We can also become complacent with where we are and, and what God has done in the past and the way that God has worked in the past and the things that He's accomplished in the past and the ways that we've gone about doing things in the past. And so our desire would just continually be to let's get back to the past. Let's get back to where we were. Let's, let's again canonize those things that have worked at some point in the past. And so certainly they're going to work in the future. And so what many churches are doing today is they're trying to get back to what things were before COVID. And we can do that if we want to do that. If everything was the same as it was before COVID, that would be a good thing to do, but everything is not the same. In fact, most things are very, very different. What we need to do and what your elders and other leaders are seeking to do is, is ask how can we fulfill the unchanging mission that we have to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and to help them grow deeply in their faith. It's an unchanging mission. How can we do that in the best way in the context that we're in today because it's different than it's ever been before? And we can say, well, let's just go back to what used to work, but it's not going to work because we're not where we used to be. So we're asking this question. We're praying ourselves through this question. Where is it that God would ultimately have us to be? Now, this isn't, or we're not the first people to ever deal with this. It's not something that we've created. Long before we started asking these questions, they were being asked by other people in other churches and other places. In fact, there's one in particular that I'm thinking about 
where there was a, a cultural upheaval that was going on, and they were asking themselves, how is it that we should engage the culture that we live in? And it's a church in a place, a city, called Colossae. Colossae. They, too, were dealing with an upheaval of culture. They were dealing with a situation where the church was not just being embraced and, and people were flooding in and everybody's wondering, well, tell us more about Jesus and more about your church. And it wasn't that. And so the Apostle Paul writes to them a letter. We call it Colossians wrote a letter to them to tell them, to help them to understand what to do in the cultural context in which you live. And we find it in Colossians chapter 4, and I'd invite you to go ahead and turn there, because there are some very important principles that we can glean out of Colossians chapter 4 that are going to assist us in the context that we're in today, because it speaks as though it's being written directly to us, because of course it is, even as it's being written to the Colossians. Colossians is about halfway through the New Testament, can find it there, find it in the table of contents, and find your way right there. Chapter 4 and beginning in verse 2 is where we're going to be today for the remainder of our time. In a nutshell, Paul tells them, don't settle. And the specifics of the message that he gives them are, are what I want to show to you. And there are a few different, few different realities about the specifics that he wants them to do that speak very powerfully to us in our own context, and I hope will be challenging and encouraging and enlightening to all of us as we go. So we see the first, as Paul writes in Colossians chapter 4 in verse 2, if you look at it, it says, he says, he writes, devote yourself to prayer, being watchful and thankful. First, first truth comes right out of that. It's very simply, start with prayer. Don't settle for where things are, and instead move yourself forward. And what you need to do first is start with prayer. doesn't waste any time in giving his priority number one. Devote yourself, he writes, to prayer. This is a place that all ministry and service and vision needs to begin. If we want to ensure that our efforts are in focus, that we're seeing the mission clearly, then we need to be connected to the one who gave us the mission in the first place, who is God. And the way that we connect with God is through prayer. This is what your elders are seeking to do as they seek to determine and understand where it is, how it is that God is leading us, the direction that he would have us to go, the way that we can base, best stay in step with his will and what his purpose would be for us. So every week we're together to pray, to ask God to lead, to understand his mind, to pray for you, to pray for all those prayer requests that you turn in, to pray for our congregation, to pray for his leading, so that we would hear his mind and understand. Now, that being said, there are some things that we can assume that we can go forward with apart from prayer. What I'm saying is you don't even have to pray about them. Well, how can that be? Well, well because he's already told us what he wants us to do. And so we don't need to waste time spinning our wheels in prayer wondering how he's going to answer because he's already answered it before we ask it. So we don't need to pray if we should reach out with the gospel and help people grow in their faith. We already know. We don't need to pray and ask whether or not we ought to be bold and compassionate with reaching out with the care and the love of Jesus to the poor and the needy. We don't need to pray. We already know. We don't need to pray if we should go out of our way, if we should reach across barriers and boundaries of sin and division to others with the compassion of Jesus. 
We already know. But sometimes we feel the conviction of the Spirit. It's like, yeah, I think I ought to pray about that. And God's like, stop praying. Start doing. Because you already know it sort of appeases our conscience to be doing something by praying and asking, well, God, do you want me to share the gospel with anybody? It's like, stop praying and start doing. Imagine how that would go in your home kind of growing up. Imagine that after dinner, your, your mom said, all right, now I want you to do the dishes. And you're like, okay, I hear you. But you don't do them. And so she comes back and she says, now here, let me, let me tell you in another way that I want you to do the dishes. And, and you get busy and you go off and you do other things. And you know you should, but you don't. And she comes to you again and she says, now I want you to do the dishes. And you say to her, now I, I, I know what you're calling me to do, but I really think that I need to pray about whether or not I should. How's that going to go over? Right? Not well at all. It would not have gone over in my house at all. There would have been timeouts or worse. Well, worse, actually. It would not have gone well, but that's the tactic that we oftentimes take with God. Here, it's very abundantly clear what we should do. Well, let me pray about that just to see whether or not that's something God would have for me. Some things we already know and we should just get to. So then, in this context, what is Paul calling us to be devoted to in this idea of calling us to devote yourself to prayer. Well, given the context, it looks like Paul is urging prayer that we would be convinced in our hearts, that we would be watchful in our minds, and that we'd be obedient with our feet. In other words, that we'd be courageous enough to take the things we've already been called to do and just get on with it already. It's a prayer for our own commitment. It's a prayer that we would be, he goes on to say, now be watchful. It's a prayer that we would be looking for every opportunity and that we would respond and that we would jump in when those opportunities come along. He says, devote yourself to prayer. Start with prayer is his word to us. And you can see that certainly is on Paul's mind as he goes on in verse 3. He writes, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message. You can see that's on his mind. So that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. He's saying don't settle also means to share with clarity. Start with prayer. Share with clarity. I love Paul's determination to take the message of Christ forward. He says even here that as he's writing this letter, he's in chains or he's in prison. Now, why is he in, why is he in prison? It's because of his preaching. It was that bad. No, it wasn't bad at all. It was actually phenomenal, his preaching, but not everybody was happy with the message of the gospel, and so they trumped up charges, and they suggested things were true about him which weren't. They, they were just trying to silence him. So picture him in prison for preaching about Jesus, and he's asking people that they would pray. Why? So that he might have more opportunity to preach the gospel, the very thing that put him in prison in the first place, that he'd have an open door to preach the very thing that got him in trouble. For me, I'd probably be praying for an open door too, like, a, open, like the front door of the prison to get out. That's not Paul. There's nothing that's going to stop him from following through on his call. And we also need to pray that we'd see and walk through every door of opportunity 
There are all sorts of doors of opportunity that are out there. And as we get on our knees and as we start to pray, it is going to sensitize us to be watching for and to participate then in those very things. And the other thing that you can know is as you pray and then an opportunity pops up, you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that this is a divine appointment that God has set up and put in your lap so you can go forward with confidence, so that you can go forward with boldness because God is with you. If you're having trouble getting into sharing the gospel with somebody, I would simply ask you, how's your prayer life around that topic? And I'm pretty willing to go on, out on any limb you want me to go on to say your prayer life in that topic is not very strong if you're not finding opportunity. Because they're all around us. We're just not sensitized to them. Because we're not giving our mind and our heart over to those opportunities. Paul's prayer request in verse 4 that we read already is that we would proclaim, that he would proclaim the message clearly and that's every bit as vital today. If there's one thing that's needed concerning the message of Jesus, who he is, and what it means to be a follower of Jesus today, what's needed is clarity. See, there's confusion about the nature of Christ. The, there's assumptions about the followers of Christ. There are accusations about the teaching of Christ that all bring the perception of who Christians are, what, Christ, what it means to be a follower of Christ, what it means to believe in Jesus and what Jesus is about, there's all of these things going on that it's making it very, very blurry or murky to understand and really see who Christ is and, and what, his follow, or what it means to be his followers because there's so much swirling out there that people are saying that others on the outside don't really know what to believe or what to understand about who Jesus is, and it's very blurry. And what's happening is that Christ and Christians, as a result, are being dismissed as being either irrelevant or on the other end of the spectrum, there are those who are suggesting that Christians and Christianity is actually harmful to society. It's out there. It is being spoken. What is needed is clarity so that the real Jesus can be seen and known. And when we refuse to engage with those who are on the outside, we're not doing anything to dispel the myths that are being put out about Jesus. We're not doing anything to assist the the narrative about who he is. In fact, we're just con we're contributing to the blur because we sit back while all of this is going on and we just sort of isolate ourselves and, and we provide no benefit whatsoever. We need to be ambassadors who bring Christ in focus. There's never been a time when this is more needed than today, so don't settle for personal comfort and convenience while the person of Jesus is being dragged through the mud and the, and the reputation of who he is and what he has come to do is just being discredited. Share with clarity. It's a responsibility that we have, and if you have any problem with the way that Christians are being treated today, you need to ask yourself, what are you doing to contribute to a different point of view? Instead of just getting mad that people are believing certain things and are treating Jesus poorly, but we're not being ambassadors to change the narrative. Share with clarity. Then Paul goes on to tell us something about what that engagement ought to look like when we have it. Paul tells us, as he continues in verse 5, look at it, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. 
Don't settle lastly means to speak with grace. Start with prayer, share with clarity, speak with grace. When Paul speaks of outsiders here, he's talking about people who are not believers in Jesus Christ. Now, I have every reason to believe that there are people who are listening right now who would be in that outside of Christ category. It just means that you're outside of having put your faith in Jesus. And if that's you, then we're thrilled that you are a part of us today, that you are listening wherever you are, where you are sitting. We're thrilled that you are with us. Paul isn't using this in any sort of pejorative sense. He's not talking down to you, and we're not either by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, this passage, this verse, really isn't even written to you. This is written to Christians who have treated others who are on the outside in ways that they shouldn't have. And Paul's saying, I'm not very happy about that. And we're not very happy about that either. It's precisely why Paul instructs Christians to be wise in the way that they speak. Wisdom would insist that our actions would be in keeping with the model of Jesus. And what's the model of Jesus? His example was to express love and care and compassion in every one of his encounters. His example was to step outside of the cultural norms to engage sinners and Samaritans, which just wasn't done at that time, to step out so that he might express mercy toward the poor and toward prostitutes. That's what he's doing. That's what we know his heart is about. He's turned cultural convention on its head. And the people who were most offended were the stuffy religious people because they were the people who thought that the ones that he was expressing love towards are ones that ought to be shunned and turned away and disrespected and just pushed into the gutter. He said, no, no. That's not me. And the temptation for us today is to be stuffy religious people still. This is a trap that we can certainly fall into, and many do. And that's precisely what Paul is speaking to in verse 6 where he adds that he wants our conversation to be full of grace. For our conversation to be full of grace, that's never been more needed than today. There's never been anyone who has ever demonstrated more grace than Jesus, so we need to take our cue from him. And when Jesus encountered outsiders, as they're called here, he didn't condemn them for living outside of their belief system, as we sometimes do. Does it not make sense that one who is not a believer in Jesus Christ, who who has a different ideology because they don't have the heart of Christ, that they would live in conformity with their own worldview? It makes perfect sense. He didn't call them out for living according to their worldview. He simply engaged them and spoke the truth as he came to bring it and he invited them to walk away from and leave their life of sin. And they were so moved by who he was and the heart with which he approached and the grace with which he spoke, they found him to be so winsome they ran after him. And they followed him by the droves. It's a beautiful thing. And the thing that spoke to them, that the spirit that made it so winsome, 
was that his heart was that of compassion, not of condemnation. Compassion, not condemnation. That's where we need to take our cue. Be wise in the way you act and let your conversation, he says, be full of grace. We have a responsibility to be the ones who take the lead on this. There is such division that exists in our world today. And far too many people are willing to sit on their side of the fence and maybe speak about others on the other side of the gap, maybe to speak at them, but not to speak to them. We are the ones who I believe, as believers in Jesus, have the responsibility to take the first step. That's because of what's going to be necessary in order for this, the divisions that exist in our world today to be brought together, it's only going to happen through life and heart change. And we're the ones who understand where heart change comes from. Instead of saying, well, I'll be happy to engage and meet them halfway as long as they take the first step, it's like, why? You ought to be the one to take the first step, letting your conversation be with grace and seasoned with salt, praying that they might be willing to come out and meet you at all. I believe that we need to take on the humility of Jesus Christ who came into our world when people weren't meeting him halfway. He came the whole way, demonstrating humility and love and care and compassion. And that's the thing that spoke to hearts. That's the thing that made the difference. And he's placed that in us as followers of him that we might have that same heart of humility and use it to reach out to the world, to take the first step, to lead the way. Now, here's what I believe about you. I believe that this is the dominant point of view of Pathway, of the people of Pathway. I believe that that's who you want to be. I believe that in your heart that there is this desire to let your conversation be full of grace. I believe that we are a congregation of people who desire to speak with compassion instead of condemnation. But my challenge to you is that you would do so. See, more important than believing that we should have a heart of grace or having a heart of grace is actually demonstrating that heart of grace to those who need to see it and, and hear it and experience it. Holding the values is great, but without living them on, it accomplishes nothing. That's because no one who is diminishing Christ because of their view of Christians is getting any other input. But when we step out, when we take the first step, when we engage, when we help people understand who Jesus really is and what it really means to be a Christ follower, which is to humble ourselves maybe even apologizing at times for things that we've said or done so that they might understand the true nature of Christ, that's when we're going to make a difference. And it's going to open up minds, and it just might lead to open hearts also. I gave you a challenge that by the end of the series, so I'm just going to put that in round term, let's just say July 31st, that by July 31st that you would go with grace to someone that you know, 
someone around you, someone you encounter, that you might extend the grace and the love and the care and the compassion of Jesus to open a conversation, to step across a barrier maybe that exists between you and someone who thinks differently than you think, who looks differently, who acts differently, who believes differently than you do, to step across that line that maybe they're not willing to step across, but to meet them where they are with the good news, with the things we already know that we are called to do because God's already made it plain to us. And to take that step, I want to continue to challenge you in that regard. Some people find that hard because it, it feels like they're sort of compromising, compromising their value system in order to, in, to spend time with people who are so far apart of what your value system happens to be. But really, there's probably not a time when you actually are embracing the value system of Christ any more than when you reach to those who are sinners. What did Jesus say? He came to be a friend of sinners. That's our call. You're not, you're not watering down your beliefs. You're expressing them. That's what I want to call you to, what I'm calling myself to, what I'm calling all of Pathway to, so that we might be able to be a light in our community and beyond that really makes a difference, that doesn't settle for just living like many others live, that doesn't settle for hiding behind our comfort and our ease and in our, our Christian whatever, that actually puts it out there and lives it and demonstrates that we belong to Jesus. We don't belong to some religion. We belong to Jesus. And we want other people to see that and experience that so that they can understand who the real Jesus is and what it really means to follow after Christ. How do we do that? We start with prayer. We share with clarity. And we speak with grace. And when we do, what's going to happen is that what God's call on our lives is will come in focus. We will see the mission clearly because we'll be living the mission clearly, and it's going to transform the world in which we live. There's no doubt about it. If we collectively take up this call and carry it out, our world will be transformed. And that's what I pray and desire for us all. Heavenly Father, thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. Thank you for what he calls the church in Colossae to do. And I thank you for this church. And I thank you that far and away that the people of this church desire to be ones who engage with grace, whose conversation is seasoned with salt, who want to carry forth an understanding of Jesus that is so blurry and so out of focus in our world so that others might come to understand who he really is. I believe that that's our heart, but Lord, sometimes we just don't get it done. And so in this moment, I pray that we would be courageous enough to say, yes, I'm going to follow through. I'm going to engage. I'm going to share with clarity. I'm going to speak with grace. 
in places where I've been inclined to, to speak negatively or critically about somebody else, I'm going to speak with grace. Father, I pray that you'd convict us for times when even we, we might speak to one another in such a way that doesn't demonstrate the heart of Christ. And we're not concerned about it because we're not speaking about those on the outside. That we might be example, an example to those on the inside of what it means to have a heart inclined toward you and inclined to your call. So Lord, open our minds. Lead us where you'd have us to go. We're starting with prayer. Help us to share with clarity and speak with grace so it might bring glory to your name and might bring others into relationship with you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.